Okay, thank you, Peter. And uh, we're all very far removed from each other. I know because of the screen. Is that what you call that wall up there? <laughs> and so that's why you sit at the back. But uh, it's uh, good again to be here tonight. And I'm sure that you'll be delighted to know that I'm not using the PowerPoint tonight. I used it last night. I don't usually, but you would be even more cross-eyed if I was projecting uh, passages of scripture that start somewhere in the middle and finish on the other side. You'll end up being able to speak Arabic very well, I'm sure, at the end of it, because I think that's something how their language goes. But it is, uh, it is good to be here, and uh, I, I picked up one of the Cape May Australia brochures, but there are other, others back that advertise not just the uh, Bible school, but also there's what they call a summer refresh, and uh, being English, that is British in origin, I live in Canada now, but either way, summer refresh dated 1st of January is kind of very strange to me. Uh, because we're all back to front down here. And one of the things I, um, I, I, I'm always concerned about when I come to Australia is that I've always been told that when the Lord comes back, we're going to go up to meet him in the air. That means you folks are going to go in the opposite direction to those of us on the top of the world. So I don't know where you're going, <laughs> but I'd just like to be back in the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> and go up in the right direction. So, Lord, please delay your coming back for a little while. But I'm sure there'll be some way to fix it all. The theme for these three nights is experiencing Christ in you. And the verse that I'm making the key to that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We read this verse last night, verse 5 and 6. I'm going to read it to you again tonight, simply as the uh, foundation uh, of what I'm going to say this evening, when Paul, writing at the end of his letter, second letter to the Corinthians, says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. What do you expect to find if you examined yourself and tested yourself? Then he says this, do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? And I suggested last night, he's not talking about something mystical and somehow uh, unreal. Because he then says, and I trust that you'll discover that we have not failed the test. In other words, over all that I've been saying to you in the previous 12 chapters, Paul didn't write the chapters, of course, the chapter divisions, but in the previous 12 chapters... In the light of everything I've shown you there, I hope you realize that we have not failed this test of Jesus Christ being in us. Not because life has been wonderful and harmonious and easy, but actually the reverse. And we looked at this last night and all the many times Paul talks in this letter more than any other letter about hardships and persecutions and difficulties, etc., etc., etc. And he says that is the place where you discover if Jesus Christ is real or not. You don't discover he's real on a sunny blue sky day when everything feels good and everything's working out rightly. You may know Christ then, but you don't really see the evidence of his presence until you're in a place of darkness and discouragement. And a key passage we read last night, and then I'll go to what we're going to talk about tonight, but a key passage in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, verse 8. We are hard-pressed, says Paul, on every side. But we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says this, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given unto death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. Things are tough for us, he says. We're given over to death for this reason, that his life becomes evident and revealed within us. And having talked about that in so many different dimensions, he says in his last chapter, by the way, examine yourself, you Corinthians, to see if you're in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in 
you unless he says you fail the test I want to talk about another aspect of that this evening from this same letter where in chapter 3 Paul contrasts the old covenant with the new covenant and I want to talk with you about what he says here and uh, try and understand what he means here and I believe if we grasp some of this it will be liberating uh, in our lives in, in, in a, perhaps a fresh way let me read you though first from 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 and uh, from verse 3 where Paul says you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Such confidence as this is ours through Jesus Christ, our, through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, which is of course the law, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And then down to verse, no, let me, let me read verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which is engraved in letters of stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? And down to verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Phew, that's a complicated passage, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, what is Paul talking about here? Well, he's talking about first the Old Covenant, which was the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, written on tablets of stone, and accompanied by this glory which was visibly expressed in Moses' face, you remember, when he came on the mountain. But the problem is, says Paul, that Old Covenant only brought death. Death because it revealed to people what God required in his law, but without the resources to enable them to do it. And so the law mocked them and humiliated them, and they became disillusioned, disappointed, and the word Paul uses it brought death. Now let me talk about this verse regarding the old covenant, because it raises an important question. Why did God give a law that the people were unable to keep? That doesn't sound very fair, does it? Without knowing anything else about you, I would be quite prepared to look you in the face and say, you have broken the law of God. And you wouldn't be embarrassed by that. You wouldn't get hot under the collar. You wouldn't get angry. You wouldn't even blink. You'd look me back in the face and say, and so have you. Nah. Because you know and I know, no man, no woman, no boy, no girl ever kept the law of God. Basic principle in making rules is any rule people can't keep is a bad rule. And yet God has given to us in this old covenant, in the law, a set of requirements so high, so demanding, nobody has been able to keep them. Now, why is the law the way it is? Is it because God 
gave it on a bad day. His lights playing up a bit. I'm going to show them, you know, and make life really difficult for them. Well, of course not. God doesn't have bad days. To understand why the law is what it is, I want to compare two scriptures with you, both of which define, the only two scriptures, that define what all sin is. And you probably know the word sin literally means to miss the mark. It comes from archery. If you took an arrow and you, you, you aimed it at a target and you released it and it missed by a centimeter, it was called sin. If it, you missed by a meter, it was called sin. If you missed by a kilometer, it was called sin. If you shot in the opposite direction, it was called sin. For this reason, sin is not a measurement of how bad we are. It's a measurement of how good we are not, if you understand the difference. There is a sense in which God actually isn't interested in how bad a person is. We're interested because we like to compare ourselves. God is interested in how good a person is not. To sin is to have missed the mark. Well, that means that sin is a relative word. We, we don't know what sin is unless you know what the mark is that we, have, that we have missed. And the two verses that I want to give to you tell us what the target is that we have missed. First of all, in 1 John 3 and verse 4, John writes this, Everyone who sins breaks the law. Sin is lawlessness. So John says, every time anybody sins, you know what they do? They've broken the law of God. If my left hand here represents the law of God, anybody who sins comes short of its requirement because that measures the target that we have missed. Now that raises then the question, if the law of God is the target that we have missed, why did God make it so high that we can't hit it? Why didn't he lower it a little bit to give us a bit of encouragement and occasionally you might actually hit it? Well, there's a second verse that we need to compare with that verse that describes what all sin is. It's the only other verse that describes what all sin is in the New Testament. It's in Romans 3.23, and you probably know this verse. For all have sinned and come short of what? The glory of God. So Paul says, if my right hand here represents the glory of God, every time somebody sins, you know what they've done, they've come short of the glory of God, whatever that is. We'll come to that in a moment. But that means this. If John says the target we've missed is the law of God, and Paul says the target we've missed is the glory of God, that means that the law of God and the glory of God equal the same thing. They both represent the target that we have missed. And therefore, to answer the question, why is the law of God what it is, we have to ask another question, what is the glory of God? And the word glory occurs in scripture with slight variation of meaning depending on its context. But essentially, the glory of God is the moral character of God. Do you know Vine's expository dictionary of New Testament words? It's a classic on defining uh, Greek words in scripture. And he defines glory as being the character of God, what he essentially is, and does. It's the kind of thing John had in mind in John 1.14. He said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And when John says that in Jesus Christ we saw his glory, what did he see? Was it a bright light suspended above Jesus' head, as artists sometimes portray in a circle? <laughs> No, he's saying we saw in Jesus Christ exactly what God is like. So those of us who grew up with him as a boy in Nazareth, the way he went about his activities, the way he kicked the ball up and down the road and went hiding in the woods and hunting in the hills with his friends, the way he talked to his mother, we saw what God was like. When he began his public ministry, the way he went about his, uh, sorry, before that, when he went and worked in his carpenter shop with his father, the way he worked, the way he invoiced accurately for the work he'd done, the way he paid his bills on time. We saw what God was like when he began his public ministry, the way he went about his ministry, the way he would talk to a woman everybody else was embarrassed to be seen with. We saw what God was like. 
The way when a leper came down the road ringing his bells, everybody stay away from me. I have this contagious disease. Jesus would cross the road and take his bell away and touch him. If you notice, Jesus always touched lepers. And nobody touched lepers. We saw what God was like. In the way he talked to a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery, the man let go scot-free and the woman drawn out in order to be stoned. And the way Jesus took her under his protection and threw out the challenge to the people, okay, throw the first stone if you've got no sin, and of course nobody did. And he said, they don't condemn you, neither do I. Go and sin no more. We saw what God was like. Because the glory of God is the revelation of the character of God. And if that was true of Jesus, as of course it was, it was not designed only to be true of Jesus. It was designed to be true of every human being because in the beginning God made human beings in his image. People have discussed what the nature of that image is. But whatever the nature of that image is, it means when you look at a human being, you see what God is like. That's the nature of the image, isn't it? If somebody says to us, what is God like? We ought to be able to say, well, if you really want to know, follow me around for a week. Just watch the way I act and the way I react and the way I behave and and get an insight into my mind, the things I think. And if you follow me for a week, you'll know what God is like. He, of course, wouldn't say that. And if he did, we wouldn't trust you. (laughs) What are we saying? We're saying we're sinners. What are we saying? We've come short of the glory of God. And so if we've come short of the glory, the image, the moral character of God, and the law is equal to the glory of God, they both represent the target we have missed, then when God gave the law, it was not just a set of rules to keep people out of mischief, It was a revelation of what God is like in his moral character. So when he said, you shall not steal, it's not because stealing isn't very nice. Well, of course it isn't. But because God is not a thief. And you were made to be in his image. So do not steal. When he said, you shall not commit adultery, it's because God is totally faithful. And you were made to be in his image. So don't ever commit adultery. When he says, you shall not bear false witness, it's because God never tells lies and you're made to be in his image. When he says you shall not covet, it's because God is not greedy and you're made to be in his image, so do not covet. And you go through the Ten Commandments and you find in them a revelation of what God is like even when in, the, in one of the commandments children honor your parents. Why? Because in the Trinity, the Son says, I always do what pleases the Father and you're made to be in the image of God, so children honor your parents. And when he says six days will you labor on the seventh day, do no work. Why? He tells us why. He says because God rested on the seventh day. And God rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, of course. (laughs) After six days of hard creating, he needed a day off. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he was finished. And we're to rest in the finished sufficiency of God. And so the law under the old covenant on tablets of stone was given to reveal what God is like so that we might understand what we are supposed to be like, having been made in his image. And so the purpose of the law and the old covenant is to reveal what God is like. But of course the effect of the law, which is why Paul says here that this law on tablets of stone only brought death, is because having revealed what God is like, it also exposed what we are like. That we cannot be what we were created to be. And that's why, in Romans 7, verse 7, Paul says, I would not have known what sin was except to the law. I could be up to my neck in sin and enjoying every bit of it. A totally clear conscience. And then suddenly the law came, And I discovered I was guilty. Romans 3.20, through the law we become conscious of sin. 
And that's why, of course, the law is part of our message that people understand what God is like to understand what we are like in our failure to be what God is like in his moral character as we were created to be. And, of course, God also teaches our failure. And ever since Moses condemned Mount Sinai, the rest of Scripture is a record of the failure of the people. The historical books record the details of their failure. The poetic books weep and mourn about their failure. The prophetic books preach about their failure. Because the written law could only but expose our failure. And one of the most important things we come to recognize in our own Christian lives in order to then draw on the resources that are available to us is to realize I am a failure. I cannot be what I was created to be. You know, when Jesus talked about the law most in the four Gospels was in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, there he really rubbed it in, if you like about the inability and failure of human beings. He said to them, have you heard it said, you must not murder, must not kill? And they probably said, yes, we've heard that law. That's a good one. We don't want people going around killing. Jesus said, I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, even though you'd never stab him in the back, you'd never put a gun into his head, you're already guilty of murder. Have you heard it said, you must not commit adultery? Yes, we've heard that one. I said, you said, Jesus, if you look at a woman and you lust after her, even though you don't know her name, even though you don't know where she lives, even though you'd never dare go and knock on her door, you are already guilty of adultery. I can imagine the beads of perspiration standing out on the foreheads of these people. They're going to listen in the Sermon on the Mount to Jesus preaching good news. They probably said, I thought we were going to hear some good news. This isn't good news. This is terrible news. It was bad enough before we couldn't do these things. Now we can't even think about them. What was Jesus doing? He was doing for them what he must do for you and for me. Bringing them to the point of realizing, I simply cannot be what I was created to be. In myself and by myself. And God exposes our failure and it's a painful process but it's a necessary process if we're going to discover what is the goodness about the good news of the new covenant. We have to understand the death nature of the old covenant that we cannot be what we were created to be. And the reason why God exposes this to us is not to humiliate us, not to embarrass us, not to rub our nose in our own dirt. But that having exposed us, he might clean us up and change us. That's why the good news must begin with a recognition of the bad news. You know, we love the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. It's some of our favorite chapters probably in the whole Bible. But we won't understand chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 until we understand Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. And we don't like those three chapters. They're not comfortable chapters. Paul talks about sin. He talks about the wrath of God. That the wrath of God is not zapping people and hitting them over the head. The wrath of God is letting them go in the direction that they've chosen to go. And all the consequences of that. And then he says in chapter 3 to the Roman Christians right to, And by the way, don't get smug about this, he's saying in effect. Because you too are guilty. We who condemn others are doing the same things. And he rubs it completely in. And halfway through chapter 3, you're getting very, very depressed. If you're reading this for the first time. Because he's saying there, that unless you understand the bad news... You won't really understand how good is the good news. It's the same reason why when you go to visit your doctor, your doctor always wants to know what's wrong with you, which makes them pretty miserable people, doesn't it? <laughs> and when you go into your doctor's surgery and uh, you want to put a positive spin on everything, you want to be positive and constructive, and you say, good morning, doctor, how are you this morning? What a beautiful day. Uh, he, he'll say, yes, lovely day. What's wrong with you? You think, here we go again. This guy is so negative. So you say, I just want a bottle of medicine. 
the kind of medicine you gave me last time. I can't just give you some medicine. Yes, you can. Give me that strawberry-flavored stuff I had last time. I can't just give you some strawberry-flavored medicine. What's wrong with you? And then he starts asking some very embarrassing questions. To get up in the night? Yeah. How many times? About 64. <laughs> what color is it? It's blue. <laughs> he says, ha-ha, you're sick. <laughs> but I've got a remedy. It's a bottle of pink medicine. <laughs> but the point is this. He can't apply the remedy until he's applied the, the diagnosis. The most important thing a doctor does is make a diagnosis. If the diagnosis is wrong, the remedy will be wrong. If the diagnosis is right, there's a chance the remedy can be right. And we have to understand the diagnosis that the scripture gives us that the law was designed to expose to us. That no matter how nice a person I am, no matter how well-meaning I might be, I cannot be what I was created to be. I miss the mark. I come short of the glory of God and I violate the law of God because these two things equal the same thing. So, so, so what is the, re what is the um, remedy? In chapter 3 and verse 6 of 2 Corinthians, he says this, that God has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, the letter was the written inscription, the tablets of stone that only brought death. Not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, undermines, demotivates, condemns us. But the spirit gives life. Now what does he mean? If the letter kills, as we've said, the old covenant had that function... What does it mean for the spirit to give life? In other words, how is the glory of God that we've come short of going to be restored in the human experience? Or how is the law of God that we have broken? Everybody who sins breaks the law. How is that law of God going to be restored into our lives? Because Jesus said in the Son of Man, I've not come to abolish the law. I've not come to apologize for it. Not one dot, not one stroke of a T will disappear from the law. It is totally intact because it reveals the character of God. I have not come to apologize, but I have come to fulfill it. What did he mean? To make it work. This is going to be the end product of the gospel. Well, let me read you three verses in three different parts of scripture. And uh, then we'll tie them together, and, and hopefully it will make not only sense, but it might excite you. First of all, in Colossians chapter 1, let me read you verse 25 to 27, where Paul says there, I have become its servant, speaking there about the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. Let me pause for a moment. He says, I present you now the word of God in its fullness. There's nothing missing now. There has been things missing because in the past there's been a mystery. There's been something missing. Moses came on Mount Sinai with the law of God in his hand and gave it to the people. He went back to his tent, sat down, scratched his head and said... This is all very well, but there's something missing here. When a prophet would prophesy and preach, he'd go back to his home and sit down and scratch his head and say, there's something missing here. There's a mystery here. Now, says Paul, at last, that mystery, which has been hidden, has been disclosed. So we have the word of God in its fullness. And then he explains what that is in verse 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is... Christ in you, the hope of what? Glory. And that does not mean heaven. I've a number of times heard this spoken of, Christ in you is the hope of heaven. Glory is what we have come short of. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, Christ in you is your hope of hitting the target you have been missing. Glory is what John said of Jesus. The word became flesh and lived among us and we saw his glory. Now he says, that same Jesus Christ in you now is your hope of that same glory, of restoring into you the character of God. We, we'll explain that a bit more in a moment, but let me read you the second 
of the three verses I want to give you. This is in Jeremiah chapter 31, when Jeremiah now, or God is speaking to Jeremiah about the new covenant that he's going to establish. And he says in verse uh, uh, 31, no, let me read verse 33. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their people, but I will be their God and they will be my people. Now says God, the new covenant is not going to involve a rewriting of the law. The new covenant will involve a relocating of the law from external tablets of stone to internally in the hearts of human beings are write it on their minds or are place it in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. Let me give you the third verse and then we'll tie them as I say together. Chapter, Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 27. And in Ezekiel 36 verse 27, again speaking about the new covenant, God is speaking to Ezekiel and says, uh, verse 27, and I will put my spirit in you. And what do you think the result is going to be? <laughs> I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is the new covenant, the spirit in you, and here's the consequence. You will be careful to keep my laws and to follow my decrees. Now put these three together. Christ in you is your hope of glory, hitting the target that all have sinned and come short of. I'll put my law in your hearts. I'll put my law in your minds. The law that you have broken, which is the definition of sin. I'll put my spirit in you. That, of course, is going to be new after Pentecost. Put my spirit in you, and here's the result. Have my spirit in you. I'll move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. And what that means is this, that what is a command under the old covenant is going to become a promise under the new covenant. What is a command under the old covenant becomes a promise under the new covenant. Let me illustrate that from a true story from the north of England, a man who was in prison uh, for some crime. And uh, every Sunday afternoon, it's a true story, every Sunday afternoon there was a Christian who would go to the prison, meet with various prisoners, and he met with this prisoner, and in the course of time he led him to Christ. He was born again of the Holy Spirit, and when he was released from prison, one of the first things he wanted to do was to visit a church. He didn't know which church to visit, so he picked one at random. Went into a church, sat down, there on the wall in the front of the church were written the Ten Commandments. It's probably an Anglican church. They sometimes have these things there to remind us. And uh, he thought to himself, that is the last thing I want to sit here and look at. I know my past. I know my history. I know my failings. The last thing I want to do is to sit here and read those laws that condemn me. But as the service went on, maybe it went a bit long or got a bit tedious or something, he began to read those commandments and he discovered he was reading them very differently. Previously, when he read them, they said, you shall not steal. It was a command. This morning when he read it, it said, you shall not steal. It was a promise. If I could put words into his mouth, and these are my words, not his, he could have said, thank you, Lord. Why? Because I put my law in your hearts now. I've written it in your mind. It used to say, you shall not commit adultery. It was a command. But this morning it said, you shall not commit adultery. It was a promise. Again, if I put words into his mouth, he could have said, thank you, Lord. Why? Because Christ in you now is your hope of hitting the target. It used to say, you shall not bear false witness. It was a command. But on this particular morning when he read it, it said, you shall not bear false witness. It was a promise. He could have said, thank you, Lord. Why? Because I put my spirit in you. That's why. And I'll move you to follow my decrees and to keep my laws. And the very thing that had only ever been commandments that condemned had become promises that liberated. And that's what's so fantastic about the gospel. 
It's not just patching up the old broken things in our lives. That is true. It is creating something new within us. That the presence of Jesus Christ in us creates new appetites that we didn't have naturally or have before. People often ask me, how do I know if I'm a Christian? And that's an important question that people ask from time to time. And there are different ways of helping people to arrive at at assurance about that. But one of the ways is the evidence of new appetites that you never had before. I have a brother-in-law and a sister-in-law who were not Christians at all. And my brother-in-law was quite antagonistic to to anything. And and, uh, his wife, my wife's sister, Uh, stopped coming to our house because they didn't want to be in an environment uh, where we were. The only two times I talked to my brother-in-law about Christ was when he was drunk on both occasions. We were living in England at Cape Mary Hall in those days and every once in a while on a Saturday afternoon we had a youth event. People come, there are different activities through the the afternoon and have a bit of refreshment and then we'd have a meeting at night. And um, he, my brother-in-law was a black belt in karate and I asked him one of those times, would, would you be willing to be part of this and demonstrate a bit of karate to these kids? Sorry, it was judo, not karate, judo. <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, I'll do that. So he came and he did his judo and uh, when he finished, he thought, I'll stare around and see what goes on. So he stayed for the meeting. And the preacher that night was a, was a guy who had invited to come and speak to us. And when he got up to speak, he began to talk about the cross of Christ. Then he produced a long, sort of rusty-looking nail about this long. Thick nail came down to a point and went up to quite a wedge. And he said, this was the kind of nail they pushed into the hands of Jesus Christ and into the feet of Jesus Christ. And then he said, and it was you that did it, you see. Then he had a crown of thorns, big thorns the size of my fingers. And he put over his head and he said, this is the crown of thorns they put on the head of Jesus. And you were the ones who did it. And he talked in this vein, you see, about the sufferings of Jesus. And my brother-in-law got so angry. This is manipulation. This is total abuse of these young people. And he went back home and he went to bed that night and he couldn't sleep. All he could think about was the nails and the thorns. The next day we'd announced that this speaker, this evangelist, was going to be speaking in the next town, Kendall, at a meeting. He was up in the area for several days and he was going to be speaking in the next town. And uh, my brother-in-law, Simon, uh, heard that. And that afternoon, he said, I'm going to go and listen to this guy again. And he drove to this town of Kendall. And uh, on the way, he got a flat tire. And he didn't stop to change it because that would mean arriving late. And he arrived at the meeting. And that night, he came to Christ and was totally born again. I was in Germany when this happened. I'd gone to Germany, I think, on the Sunday morning or something, and uh, to speak at one of the Cape May centers there. And my wife phoned me a day or two later and said, uh, you'll never, never guess what happened, what, what has happened. So I said to her, as the most bizarre thing to guess, Simon got converted. She said, how did you know? I said, because you said I would never guess. <laughs> and she said, come and see me and told me that He's given his life to Christ. When I got home at the end of that week, I was going to speak at a university Christian union on the Saturday night, and I said to him, do you want to come? Uh, which he did. And uh, on the way down, he was in business with his father. They were in a construction business. He said, you know, we put up a set of houses recently, and we used inferior materials to those that we said we were using and those which we charged the people for. He told me this. He said, that was wrong, wasn't it? I said, yeah, it sounds like it was. He said, I need to put it right. He said, my dad will go bananas if I tell him we've got to put this right. 
He said, I must improve right myself. I said, well, why, what, why are you saying that to me now? How long ago did you do this? It was several months ago. I, I said, uh, wasn't it obvious? I said, why do you want to put this right now? He said, because it's obvious. It was wrong. So wasn't it obvious then? He said, uh, actually, no, it was clever. Well, why is it obvious now? He said, it just is. I said, Simon, if I needed any evidence that you were born again, it was this. That there's now in your heart an appetite for righteousness. It is the Spirit of God, I can say it like this, but in the light of what I'm saying today, writing the law into your heart now. And we got down to this uh, university and I spoke at the Christian Union meeting on a Saturday night. And um, he was with me and at the end of it there was uh, uh, some people who came to talk and one of the Christian Union leaders brought a guy who said he wants to become a Christian. And I was talking to somebody, so he said to Simon, thinking he was, you know, well experienced, would you lead this person to Christ? And, well, I've only been a Christian a week. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what to do. But God planted a seed in his heart that day, and uh, he gave up his business, went to Bible college, went to Columbia Bible College in South Carolina, uh, because I'd been there not long before and recommended to him. And uh, became a real evangelist. We had him on our staff at our church for a while in Toronto. Now he's in something else. But he's a real disciple and a real soul winner. And his wife too, Jane, came to Christ. But the thing is, it wasn't trying to persuade him, this is a different, your lifestyle is wrong, get another one. It was the Spirit of God in his heart, writing the law of God in his heart. And I always look for the evidence of a hunger for righteousness. Notice... Not that you will live righteously, but you will hunger for righteousness. And we're never going to be in this life perfect. I'll show you that from Second three in just a moment. We're never going to be perfect in this life, of course. So it's not, am I being righteous? Because, of course, we are not. Our position before God is that we are righteous. That's a different matter. But in our practical living, it is the hunger for righteousness. And the greater your hunger for righteousness, the more repentant you become. And the more on our knees we become. With our sin, our failures, have done it again. And I don't know why God doesn't take all that away and let us be perfect in this life. But if he did, and if it was my wife, I wouldn't want to live with her. Because... Uh, she would just be perfect. <laughs> uh, but one day we're going to be, of course. But uh, in this life, the point is that the Spirit of God in us is going to be the source of a whole new set of appetites, a whole new hunger. And Paul wrote in Romans 8, let me read it in verse 3. He said, what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature... In other words, the law, which was right, was powerless to do anything for us because of our old, broken, sinful nature. What the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. In other words, to become what we are, and stood before God, or hung on the cross for God, having made sin for us. And so he condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. What the law couldn't do. The law only humiliated us and exposed us and brought death. God did by sending his son as our substitute to be a sin offering for us. And here's the consequence. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. When the law says you shall not steal, you don't. When the law says you shall not commit adultery, you don't. Why? Because you're able to resist all these temptations, though there's a fresh appetite in your heart you didn't have before. And when we come to know that and experience that, we, we discover we've got a whole new set of promises in the Bible that used to be commandments. Anybody here got a problem with stealing? You don't look as though you might, but who knows? But I've got a promise for you. You'll find it in Exodus chapter 20. It used to be a commandment written on tablets of stone that said, You shall not steal. But now it's a promise written by the Spirit in your heart. You shall not steal. That's a promise. If you live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. That's a promise. Anybody here who's greedy? I don't know. 
But I've got a promise for you if you are, and it's a, you find in Exodus chapter 20. It used to be a command written on top of the stone. Now it's a promise written by the Spirit in your heart. You shall not covet. In other words, you will be satisfied. Anybody here facing sexual temptations you find you can hardly cope with? Well, here's a promise. It used to be a command on tablets of stone. Exodus chapter 20. You shall not commit adultery. Now it's a promise written by the Spirit in your heart. You will not commit adultery. Nobody living by the Spirit of God ever commits adultery. You can go and live by the flesh as a believer because this is another factor the flesh and the spirit the civil war in our own souls that we have to also understand and deal with but in this instance it's a new appetite somebody get their priorities all mixed up here's a promise it used to be a command written on top of the stone now a promise written in your heart you shall have no other gods before me and you seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and everything else will form the place that's a promise. And all the commands that under the old covenant only brought disappointment and disillusionment and death are replaced now under the new covenant by the Spirit who brings life. And so going back to Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, there it says, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory, so the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of his glory, fading though it was, remember when he came down the mountain, the, the, the glory of God as represented in the law that he carried with him was displayed in the facial features of Moses, you remember. Uh, so much so he had to cover his face. But if that happened then, will not the ministry of the Spirit, he says in verse 8, be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, it reveals the glory, the character of God. How much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness, that restores the glory, that restores the character of God? And that's what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? It's not just Christ dying for us to forgive us of our guilt, that we qualify for heaven instead of hell, wonderful as that is, that we're forgiven of our sin, that our conscience is eased. All that is true and wonderful, but Christ died for us that he might then rise again to impart this new life to us. And the verse that uh, uh, Peter's dad, Major Ian Thomas, based his book on called The Saving Life of Christ, which is a a book I recommend to you is a verse in Romans 5 verse 10 where Paul writes there for if through his let me just read it to get it absolutely right if when we were reckoned sorry if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son much more let me pause there's some folks who put a big full stop at that point we were reconciled to God though we were enemies by the death of his son, that becomes simply the gospel for them. Full stop. He says, much more. Now that's great. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. But there's something much more than that. Having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And having restored us to a relationship with God, he implants his own life within us, his own spirit within us. And it is his spirit in us that is at work by a process of, uh, of uh, restoring his own nature and image. Now, that doesn't mean we just sit back and become zombies and say, well, God, this is your business. Go ahead and just hope something's going to happen. It's very interesting when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where he talked about the law and said, I've come to fulfill the law, um, that nothing's going to depart, but I'm going to fulfill it, I'm going to make it work and live in your life, in your experience. And he said about, for instance, about, um, you've heard it said, you must not commit adultery. I said to you, if you lust of a woman, after a woman, you already commit adultery in his heart. And then he said this in the next verse, if your right eye leads you into sin, gouge it out. If your hand leads you into sin, cut it off. You think, why did he change the subject so suddenly? Well, he didn't change the subject, because if we're frank, the agents of sexual arousal are, sight and touch 
And he says, if this is a problem to you, don't just say, well, God, deliver me from this, but here's what you do. Not literally gouge out your eye, of course, but realize your eye is a problem, deal with it. Your hands are a problem, deal with them. Whatever it may be, deal with them. Bring them under control. Elsewhere, he says, if your foot leads you into sin, you find yourself going where you shouldn't go. Cut it off. Again, not literally. But the point being that now all you need, you will have within you, but that life within you has to live in a body that's able to obey. It's not that godliness comes from the outside in. As long as you stop doing that and stop doing this and behave yourself properly, you work godliness into your life. It's the reverse. Godliness works its way out. It is God himself who comes to live within us and he expresses himself through our bodies uh, in ways that are consistent with that. But this is where we have the battle of the flesh against the spirit. And with your flesh, don't just sit back and hope it's all going to be fine. Deal with it. Discipline yourself. And I spend a lot of time uh, as a pastor, of course, dealing with people and counseling people who, who say, well, you know, I, I'm overcoming this fault and I'm overcoming this sin. What are you doing about it? Well, I pray about it. Well, stop praying. You've done that enough. Start now saying, how is my body conforming to that which God has placed in me through disciplined living? That's another subject. But, you know, the two ingredients are dependence on God and uh, obedience to God. It's, it's a discipline of obedience. We don't just depend and go into some kind of neutral, but we depend on who he is and we obey what he says and I've often said that these two things, obedience and dependence, are like two wings on an airplane, which is the most important wing on an airplane. Well, of course, if you have dependence without obedience, you'll end up with some kind of mysticism that's unhealthy. If you have obedience without dependence, you end up with legalism. But when you have obedience, independence upon Jesus Christ, you have dynamism and the plane flies. Now you might say, does that mean we're going to be perfect in this life? Is that an implication from what we're saying? It could sound like it, couldn't it? But Paul in this chapter, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, tells us that that is not the case because he says this, verse 17 of chapter 3, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory, that is, with nothing between us, and the Lord Jesus, reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice the tense there. Not that we have been transformed into his likeness, nor that we will be transformed into his likeness, but we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. It's, the, it's the, in the present continuous tense. And this, of course, is the nature of spiritual growth. The nature of spiritual growth is not that we know more Bible this year than last year. That's important. Not that we go to more meetings this year than last year. Not that we engage in more service this year than we did last year. All that's good. But the real evidence of spiritual growth is that, is that there is more evidence of Jesus Christ than there used to be. The thing about that, though, is this. That the more we grow in Christ the more we are aware of our own failure and our own sin. So there's a progression that takes place that those who know you and deal with you and interact with you will see from one degree of glory to another an increase in growth in Christ-likeness. But you and I will look into our own hearts and sense a decreasing growth because we become more aware of our sin. That's why... Never look into a spiritual mirror and say, am I being spiritual today? Am I being godly today? <laughs> You'll never see it, of course. It is others who see it. And uh, when we had a gathering of some of the uh, leaders on Tuesday, yesterday morning, I, I mentioned this. I don't mention it very often. I, I have done in the past, but not very often. But I think it illustrates this. There's a man name was Alan Redpath, whose book some of you may have come across. He's in heaven now. Uh, a godly man. And he had a stroke, was in hospital not long before he died. My wife and I went to visit him. 
in the hospital. He was in a wheelchair. He used to be quite a big man, and he, he used to play rugby in his heyday. But he was... Uh, he had withered away, was almost skin and bones. His voice, which used to be strong and booming, was frail. He said to me on that occasion, I have only one date in my diary. I said, what is that? He said, I don't know what day it is, but the only engagement I have left is the judgment seat of Christ. But then he said this. He asked us to pray for him. He said, I've never known such spiritual warfare as I've known sitting in this wheelchair. The temptations I thought I'd dealt with and conquered and done away with years ago. And they come back. He said, I didn't know that my heart and my mind were so dirty. I felt a little bit embarrassed when he was saying that. We prayed for him as he had asked us to. And then we left. And as we left his room, going in the corridor in the hospital, there was a nurse coming to attend to him. And as we passed her, I, I said to her, uh, you look after him, won't you? She said, oh yes, we look after everybody here. I said, I'm sure you do, but he's a very special man. And she stopped. I think we were mobile at that point, but she stopped. She said, you're right, he is, isn't he? So we stopped. We said, well, we think so. She said, so do we. So we were discussing this in, in the staff room. The nurses were discussing and we were saying, we love working with Alan Redpath. And she said, one of the girls said this, whenever I work with Alan Redpath, I come away feeling clean. And this nurse said to us, when she said that, we said, that's exactly what it is. We feel clean. And as we walked out, we thought, how interesting. Here's Alan saying, I've didn't know my mind was so corrupted and dirty. And here's the nurse saying, what is it that makes me feel clean? And the evidence of Jesus Christ is not looking into a mirror and saying, yes, I'm doing really well. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, not on ourselves. But it's other people who will see evidence of his presence within us. The way, as a husband, I treat my wife. The way as parents we treat our children. The way we talk to our neighbors and drive our cars and spend our money will increasingly give more evidence of what God is like until one day we will be what the Bible calls glorified. To be glorified is to be fully restored into the image in which Adam was created in the Garden of Eden. That when we look at each other, we see a full expression of what God is like in his moral character, his love, his kindness, his goodness, his honesty, his justice, all these virtues that belong to him. And so Paul says at the end of this letter, having included this chapter 3, examine yourselves. To see whether you're in the faith, test yourselves, don't you realize that Jesus Christ is in you? And that is not navel-gazing because we don't see him there. But just Examine yourself. Am I living in that relationship of dependency upon the Spirit of God? Do I realize, as Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can be religious, you can be evangelical, you can, you can engage in Christian work, but you won't accomplish anything, you won't be any fruit from it. But if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear fruit. Because it's in our union with him where Christ is living in us and expressing himself through us that uh, God brings fruit so I ask you now as a finish what is the measure of our dependence I think that is the evidence or, or the means to spiritual growth. what's the evidence what's the measure of our dependence upon the spirit of God and that's why I think in this letter Paul has said I've had things stripped away from me all the time the carpet pulled from under my feet I've been through all these troubles we talked about last night because there and then I find out what I really depend on and I've discovered and I, he says I hope you will see it as well it's Jesus Christ who is also the source and of our righteousness and uh, godliness does that make sense? let's thank the Lord for that we'll pray together and thank him 
for his uh, sufficiency. Lord, we're so grateful uh, this evening that we're not engaging in wishful thinking when we talk about your truth. We're not involved in some kind of escapism from the real world that we live in and have to go back into. But thank you, we're talking about that relationship with you that your son, the Lord Jesus, came to make possible by being made sin for us. Everything I am became attributed to him that I might become in him the righteousness of God. Everything that he is becomes attributed to us. Thank you, that's our position, our standing before you. But thank you too that your business in us is to work that out in life and righteousness and fruitfulness. And I pray you'll give us an appetite and a gratitude and anticipation of your working and fulfilling it in us. For we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.